Welcome to Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a weekly podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Join me, Randy Cantrell, and my co-host Dennis Simpson as we discuss the history, facts, people, places, events, lots more surrounding Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Visit the website at hotspringsvillageinsideout.com. Welcome back. Another episode of Hot Springs Village Inside Out. The website is hsvinsideout.com. Dennis Simpson, he is Dennis Simpson. I guess you're at the bottom of the screen. I don't know. And the other a, fella, y'all recognize uh, him, Mr. Jeff Atkins. So we're going to have a Civics 101, HSV Civics 101 lesson. Don't tune out. We're not going to bore you. We hope to educate you and maybe even entertain you uh, along the way. <clears throat> we should have recorded before uh, we did record because, well, it's been it's been pretty hysterical. But I'm, I'm sleep deprived, so Dennis, I'll know. Oh, it, it, it was I'm not sleep deprived, and it was still really funny. It really was. We, yes. We've actually been catching up, and to be very frank about it, we, we've actually talked about these extremely dry topics, but they're very pertinent because we're watching social media, and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of to be frank, lack of knowledge. And there's well-meaning people that are asking questions that seem logical, but then when you look at the declarations and, and the bylaws and whatever, you understand why we can't or can't do something, but nobody knows what those are. So we brought in our resident expert, Mr. Jeffrey Adkins, who again, I can't promise, but I believe has been the only res third time, three-time board member in recent history. Is that correctly, Jeff? Uh, as far as I know, there may be one or two guys that actually served seven years as, which is the same as I did. Yeah. Uh, but mine was split among two different time periods. You know what I think and Randy, if I can jump ahead, I think that's the first question I want to ask, how do you get elected and how many years do you get elected when you get on the board? How does that work? Okay. Well, a standard term is three years. So if you get a full term, it's a three-year term. Um, and you are eligible to run again and serve another three-year term. Uh, but you're not allowed to conserve, uh, serve more than seven consecutive years. So you could finish out a term for somebody, theoretically, and then get elected twice for mm -hmm. your seven years. Um, but after you've been off the board, I think for a year, you can actually run again. But how it's do I technically like, how do I technically get a full term? What does that include? Well, you how do you get how do you get it? Yeah, I mean, how many votes does it take to get a full term? Oh, usually it takes five or six thousand votes to to get uh, get elected to the board. It, it varies tremendously depending on how many people are actually running and how uh, how the votes are spread out among the different candidates. Um, so, as a property owner, Dennis, you get a, a vote for however many open spots there are. I think this past year there were four open spots, and so you voted for up to four candidates, or, or maybe it was three. I don't remember exactly. So. As a as a property owner, you get those lots per or those votes per lot. So for each property that you own, if you own multiple properties, you get a vote for each property and you can vote for up to however many spots are open. So if there's three spots open, you get three votes for three different candidates. You can't give three votes to one candidate on one ballot. Mm -hmm. And the spots okay. that are and the spots that are open, they may not all have the same three year term, though. T typically, it's. They're all three-year terms. When you don't have a full term is when somebody's resigned or otherwise left the board in the middle of their term. Then you have a potentially a partial term to fill out. 
Well, and, so and they, unfortunately, sometimes we have, because of health, a lot of people resign, but sometimes we have people that have health issues and have to resign. We've had health issues um, uh, that have occurred, but what they try to do is have among the seven board members have only at most three new ones every year. So hmm. you would have two, one year, two the next year, and then three the third year, and then go back through the cycle, two, two, three, two, two, three. But with lately, it's it's been more than three um, that have been uh, started at one time. Okay. Well, it was interesting to me. So you had, you had one election that involved yourself and it was a one-year term. And how did that happen? I finished third where there were three spots open. The first two were for full three-year terms. The third spot was for a one-year term. I finished the uh, term of an individual named James Ray. Uh, that was in 2007. And, uh, and so just by finishing third, I got the, the one-year term. Um, now, I think lately they've gone to a situation where they can decide if, if they can agree among the people that won, which one gets which, then um, they can do that. Um, so one guy might say, well, I only want one year. And even though he finished first, he might decide that he wants the one year. Um, but uh, typically it's by how you place in the vote. How many votes does it take? I mean, how many votes, how many members do we have to have of the board and how many does it take to pass something? Well, we have seven board members as a full board. Currently there are only six due to a resignation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that spot hasn't been filled. Uh, Just, you know, personal opinion, a board should always try to fill an open spot that is available as quickly as possible. Now there are reasons why you don't, for example, if it's December and you're getting ready to have an election in March, you don't necessarily need to fill that spot. But, you know, we've had an open spot now for quite a while. And as far as I know, it has not been filled uh, to this point, or if they're even looking, um, we may not be privy to that. Is there anything uh, in place to make there's so there obviously isn't anything in place to make that happen? Not to my knowledge. uh, There's no requirement, but you know, you run into situations where we're not all young. Uh, we have one younger board member, um, but uh, the, with all the health issues and, and potential things that could happen, especially in the COVID age, um, you need to keep a full board. So, you know, if, if I could recommend anything to the board on that subject, it would be fill that spot. Well, so let, let, me, let me catch up. And they need how many to get anything to pass? It takes four affirmative votes to pass any motion, no matter how many people are on the board. It takes a majority of the available spots. Now you say fill that position, be explicitly clear. How do they, they don't have another election just for one person, right? No, they, they don't They the board can um, vote to on an individual to fill that spot. So they just get to pick one out of the blue that, that they think is a reasonable pro- any candidate? property owner in good standing. That's eligible to be elected can be appointed in good standing. Yes. That's okay. key. Cool. That, that's that has key. their dues paid up, right? Yes. Not more than 60 days delinquent. Anything else about boards that we want to hit on? Um, well, I think we've said before, but it's a pretty thankless job um, because, you know, you're always, no matter what you do, you're not going to make everybody happy. Um, and at various times, there's various subjects that are important to the public. Uh, so you you hear a lot of feedback and a lot of it's good and a lot of it's positive. But of course, you know, back in 2007, when I was the first elected, we didn't have Facebook, our, our, our membership, our owners were not on Facebook. I mean, Facebook, I don't think I got on it until 2010. Um, and 
And it's not just that, it's next door and it's all these other social media outlets. I think it's made the job much more difficult because it, it gives a voice to people that wouldn't bother to go to a board meeting. And, um, and it spreads a lot of disinformation. Um, we really need to get to where the POA provides a good source of this type of information where it's just not left to rumor and the board, the board and the POA do address things from time to time, but there's probably a lot of other subjects that we could dispel a lot of information on as a property owners association. Um, and whether you call that a white paper or something else, uh, it's just, you know, it's hard to read declaration for, for some people and understand there's parts of the declaration that don't make any sense to me. I've had to ask lawyers, what does this mean? Because it's kind of legalese and just a clear, concise um, a document that explains how this stuff works would probably be very helpful. Well, and, well, and let me ask what we're trying to do, you know, at yeah. a high level, just provide for people. Go ahead, Dennis. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, Jeff, for clarification, this job, the, the board position pays how much? Zero. And now is that compounded interest or does that include a per diem or is that just, how does that work? It's zero. Did I hear zero? If you sit in a meeting all day, sometimes they'll give you lunch. Woo! Rubber yeah, chicken. Like, like a Subway sandwich. Those are pretty good. <laughs> um, we've what had Subway time, sandwiches. What kind of a time commitment is it? And I realize that situations can warrant different things. Right. But I mean, average. Yeah. Um, I would say probably today it takes more than it, it used to or at least this year, it probably takes more than other years, um, but it does vary considerably. Um, probably a minimum of 10 hours a week, even at the lightest time, just by reading, if you're gonna read all the committee member or committee minutes um, or any other information that gets distributed to you by the POA, um, it would probably take a minimum of 10 hours. And that includes meetings because you're also uh, typically a liaison to committees. So you have committee meetings to attend once a month for each committee, at least once a month. Some committees meet more often than that. Um, so it's not just board meetings. You see these people on uh, YouTube on the live stream or recorded. Uh, it's not just the board meetings. They're attending other meetings. Um, and of course, then sometimes you have to have executive sessions. Uh, and just reading through all the documents was where are all the emails reading through all the emails is time consuming. Um, so yeah, and you never get away from it. No, yeah. You, no. Yeah. You don't. Um, and typically what the board does today, and, and I think it was implemented probably about 10 years ago is there's one individual board member that's responsible to responding to the individual that writes an email. So if, if Randy, if you were a property owner and you sent the board an email, you can send it to one person, of course, or you can send it to the whole board. Um, but if you do that, one person's responsible for responding to your email. Um, typically, it's on a subject that the board has already agreed on, either by vote or, or some other way. Um, and I think probably if, as an individual board member, if you didn't agree with the general response, you could do like the Supreme Court and, and have a minority opinion, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like everybody has to always agree. Um, and that's what I always did is, is uh, Keith Keck at the time responded. He was board president. He did the responses. And that was fine with me as long as I agreed with Keith's response. And he was pretty good <laughs> at doing responses. Uh, you know, and sometimes the responses, we'll just have to think about that because, you know, we don't know. 
Yeah. But you always want to respond to each person that writes in. Uh, so they don't felt like it went into a black hole or, right. or disappeared forever. At least it was read and acknowledged. Uh, yeah. That's a minimum. And then uh, typically Keith would add just a little bit of something extra about that particular topic. Like we talked about it and decided against that, or, or we may talk about that again in the future, that sort of thing. Let me, let me just follow up one more question. So we've agreed that the number, the amount you get paid is zero. Yes, it's we did. 10, it's 10 hours plus, and, and then many people buy radio ads or TV ads or, you know, promote themselves to try and get on the board so that it could be a couple thousand to get on the board to take unlimited abuse, it seems like. And if I'm not mistaken, you're on the board, you're making zero, and you're responsible for tens of millions of dollars worth of income and and, and budgetary issues every and. And I mean, and you technically, I mean, I know we have insurance, but you're technically on the hook for decisions. Is that correct? Right. Well, there's an indemnity. I can't even say the word. Indemnity. Indemnity. That one. That word. That one. Indemnity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's there's that. Um, The POA uh, will cover any lawsuits against the board. That's that's an insurance POA has um, just for any lawsuit. If the board is sued or the POA is sued, um, it, you're not personally on the hook. I mean, I guess you theoretically could be, but yeah. typically the lawsuit is against the board and not you as a board member. But there still is the moral obligation and the the pressure yeah. that you feel to try to be responsible and and a right. grown up. Well, if, yeah. if you're not going to feel responsible, you shouldn't even run. <laughs> well, and I, mean, I think really. it's dis- I think it's disingenuous of the yeah. of the rock throwers, as I call them you know, to assume that these people don't have the best interest of the village. You may not agree with their decisions or their tactics, but I mean, it can't be lost. These are people who've made investments, big investments to be well, there. It, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a time investment. It's not necessarily a huge financial investment. Well, but I'm talking um, about their property, their property. Oh, owned. they're yeah. Their property. Yes. They, they, they own, they own homes and they're living there. So They've got right. a vested interest in the future of Hot Springs Village. There's no question about that. Well, their largest in their largest investment is, is in the village, probably more than yeah. likely. And and uh, you know, very good point. We really think about that. I, and I enjoy the fact that that the board and these are wonderful people for the most part. They're well-meaning, but we all don't see things the same way at all. And of those seven people, hopefully we have seven people. Of those seven, four have to agree. Jeff, what happens when they don't? Well, what happens when you have a three or two and you don't have a full seven people or well, what do you do? Well, that's, that's the other issue. You know, it's harder to get to four if you only have six to start mm. with instead of seven. Um, <clears throat> so, so that's an issue. You're going to end up deadlocked potentially a little more. Um, you know, typically the board president doesn't vote um, unless there's a tie to break, or at least that's the way it used to be. Um, and I only remember Keith Keck having to vote one time um, in the, couple of years that I was on the board with him and he was president. Um, but I'm sure that changes over time too, but you've got to have four votes. And if you don't have four votes, it doesn't get done. Regardless okay. of how many members you have, you have to have four votes. I believe so. Yes. And, and we've had that situation, you know, if, if you're down to six and then somebody's not there one day because they're out of town, you know, they're on vacation. Heck they're retired, right? Most of them are retired. Most of the board members are retired. There's only been a few of us that have actually had, full-time jobs that I can think of. And we've got one current board member. Uh, I had a full-time job the whole time I was there. And one other board member that I can think of off the top of my head had a full-time job. But most of the board members are retired, but that doesn't mean they're going to be there for every meeting. 
Um, there, and we can do Zoom calls, you know, especially in COVID times. Uh, but there's just times where you can't have even, we've had meetings where there were five there, but it still require, required four yes votes to pass anything. And well, so that three to two vote did not pass just because it was a three to two majority. Wow. I, I've got two more questions I really want to ask. Number one, and, and Randy, I think we talked about this just a little. Does the general manager get to get to do whatever they want? And the the second myth, and I consider it a myth, is that, you know, there are, how shall I say, and Randy, you've, you've talked about this before, and we, we keep referring to social media, but it's so loud that, that there's social media that would personally attack some of these people and go, they're just trying to tear this place up, or they're just trying to whatever. No one board member has that control, do they? That, well, it, it takes four. And the general manager doesn't have a vote. And the general manager does not have a vote. And the general manager can be fired at any time, of course, subject to the terms of their contract, uh, at any time. So it's really, it's really on the board to make sure the right thing's being done. Um, and, you know, if, if they are, you know, the, we've, we've had accusations in the past that the general manager or the CEO controlled the board, and, and they probably did have more influence than they should have over board decisions. But that's why the professional management is there to start with, right? You can't, you can't be a 40-hour-a-week board member in the halls of the POA listening to the different directors that you have you know, the CEO has all the different employees reporting to them. Uh, that person should have some uh, influence on the board and tell them what's important and, and, you know, their recommendation on what to do. But it is ultimately up to the board to vote on these things. Well, since we're kind of doing board 101, what is an executive session? What do y'all talk about in an executive session and why? Well, executive sessions are held supposedly for things that need to be kept confidential um, until some future time. Like the salaries best, or something or what? No, no, not salaries. The, the best examples, I think, are real estate contracts and lawsuits. So, for example, if the POA was being sued by whoever, it could be a property owner or it could be a third party, such as maybe the gate lawsuit. Well, you, you need the board to come together and make a decision at some point on if they're going to follow the recommendations of the legal team and the management to move forward, to settle, to whatever. But you can't have those discussions out in public because you're tipping your hand to the person that's suing you or that you're involved in the lawsuit with. So absolutely, that has to be held confidential, at least until the lawsuit's over and, and probably longer. Uh, another good example would be line, land contracts. If, if the POA is getting ready to do something uh, or, or any kind of contractual situation, um, you can't necessarily let that information out um, into, the, into the public. Um, but then there are other lesser reasons why there are executive sessions. It's because we don't want to talk about it in public, um, that sort of thing. Um, I can remember examples, probably don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but examples of things that were not executive session items that were being brought up in executive session. Um, and, you know, I really applaud the current board that we have. They're very transparent that they had an executive session. I'm not so sure that they should have discussed what they discussed in executive session. And I'll, the perfect example is the um, just this recently they voted to go out for uh, an assessment increase. 
but they had an executive session about it a few days before. Well, why? Why? I mean, you're, you've told everybody that you're going to have the meeting and you're going to vote on whether to have an increase. And if you want to talk about if that's going to be $90, is it going to be $95, $100? Why not just have that discussion in public? You know, there, there's really no reason. There, there's no self-interest for the POA to keep that information private. Just discuss it in public. Another example uh, that I can think of is Balboa Club. What do we want to do with Balboa Club? Well, that's not necessarily uh, an item for an executive session because we talk about things like that in public all the time. What do we want to do with Balboa Club? Do we want to lease it? Do we want to remodel it? Do we want to work on the golf course? Any of those things are membership items that should be discussed in the public, in my opinion. And we've had boards hide in executive session before. Uh, about topics like that. So it's it's really meant for those things that need to be kept confidential. And it's not just because you don't want to talk about it in public. Yeah. All right. We've got a number of items here. And again, civic civics 101, and largely because I'm a rube and just wanted to know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some terms. Just give us some definition and kind of tell us who's got the power behind that particular thing. And let's start with declarations. So a declaration is what, and how can it be altered? How can it be changed? How can it be negated or can it be? Okay. Well, the declaration is the primary document for governance of the village. Uh, it's been around since the Cooper, uh, Cooper established the declaration, um, on April 20th of, of 1970. I've actually got the document up on my computer here. Uh, and it is the, the primary governing document of Hot Springs Village. Currently, it can be changed every seven years. Um, there's some discussion that it could be changed as long as it's been seven years since the last one, but most people interpret it, it can only be changed every seven years. So it was changed in 13, it, can be ch it could have been changed in 20, it can be changed again in 2027. So that's the typical um, schedule that most people agree to. Um, it takes two-thirds affirmative vote of property owners in good standing, and you have to have quorum. So what that means today is if you have out of the 34,000 and something uh, potential voters, there's probably only about 24,000 of those in good standing. So that means your quorum is 12,000. And out of whoever votes, you have to have two-thirds affirmative for a particular measure to pass. So 66% right. of all the good, you think roughly 24,000 good votes? Yeah, I think it actually says two-thirds, but I'd, I'd have to look exactly. But it, it's about two-thirds. So if you had 12,000 votes, it would take 8,000 to get something passed. And, and it's by yeah. item. It's, I'm, I'm sorry? sorry? Go ahead. It, it's by item. So if you, if you have multiple proposals, they stand on their own. Each proposal is its own vote. So they don't have to all pass for one of them to pass. If any one of them passes, it becomes part of the declaration. Typically, these are done about a year before. So you would actually vote on the changes for 2027 and 2026. But that doesn't mean that you can't vote on them before. They just don't become effective. Okay. And without too much detail, give us some. Give us a, a, a really good example of a declaration. Uh, of a declaration change? No, just or a declaration item. Just a declaration. Oh, What's there, an example of a declaration? Well, the one on the PA website is is the best example because that's ours. <laughs> but 
it contains all number of things. There's pages in there that all they do is describe the land that's covered. And then there's a section in there that says what can be added to the village and how. Um, and, and there's just different sections on who's a member and uh, all kinds of things. And the protective covenants are, are potentially part of the declaration, depending on your. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you about next. Okay. So define a protective covenant. Before you go there, I was going to ask real quick, Cooper's still our developer and they, they set all this up. Excuse me here, yes. Randy, for interrupting. No, you're good. But can, does Cooper have a, a, a say-so in the decrees? I mean, in the declaration, excuse me, the declarations, do they get to say, hey, we're going to pass this, or we're going to sponsor this, or we're against it, or we're going to vote for it? Where, where do they line up in this? Well, they can line up pretty much wherever they want. They have votes because they still own property here. Right. Uh, at the last um, board election, or well, actually, uh, I, I counted votes. I, I was one of the volunteers that counted votes at a board election I think about three years ago, and they had close to 100 votes at that time, which meant they had close to 100 lots in good standing. Um, and, you know, that's public record. That's not me telling you anything that's not public record. You could go search public records and see how many lots they own. Um, so they have votes, as any other property owner would, um, and they um, they have influence, you know, because they're, they're Cooper and they still have influence here in the village. Um, and for the last declaration change, they were opposed to all of the issues and they spent money, you know, they sent out mailers and they spent money other, other ways to help defeat those declaration changes and none of them passed. So they, they are still somewhat influential in that respect. Yes. So as a developer though, they don't have some Trump card that can negate every, the whole process. Well, they, they do on some things and I, I there's two classes um, of voter defined in the declaration, a class A and a class B. Class A is you and me or any property owner. Um, and class B is Cooper. And I think those are only applicable to assessment increases. Um, I don't I don't think they apply to just they can't veto a declaration change. Okay. But they they can vote their share, they can vote their class B against uh, an assessment increase, I believe, and defeat the assessment increase because they're the only um, they're only class B. So if they vote no, it's, it's no, I don't think they've ever done that. I, I think they, their attitude is for things like that, they're going to go with the owners and whatever the owners decide they're okay with. Well, I, I wanted to ask, you talked about the declarations defining the property. You know, the village is basically two parts. It went from here to Balboa road and then what 2000 or 1990, it went from, from Balboa road to the other end. When they added that other piece, did they have to change the declarations? Did we have to vote on it? What, how does well, that work? There are things like su supplemental declarations that can be recorded. Uh, and I think that's probably the process that they use typically. I mean, even reserved property has to be brought into the village and, and put or potentially be put in the, under the declaration. And, uh, and so there's what they call supplemental declarations. And I would not want to delve into the details of how exactly that works, but they can add property to the village. Hmm. Okay. Protective covenants. Yeah. Protective covenants. Um, so this is something that's uh, physically bound with the uh, declaration when it was printed. Um, typically in the electronic format, you see them separate as separate PDFs. Um, and there's a lot of discussion or, or potentially, over how closely the protective covenants are tied to the declaration. 
because it says in the declaration that the protective covenants are included as if they were written word for word in the declaration. Um, but then there's language in the protective covenants that says that the board of directors of Cooper or their assigns um, can actually change the protective covenants. Now, protective covenants are things like, um, can you have an RV in your driveway for 72 hours? That sort of thing is, is covered by the protective covenants. When they were expanded um, as part of the CMP, it grew to 115 pages, and it appears that that's been retracted, and we're back down close to more of the original uh, protective covenants. But we hadn't confirmed that yet. We've, we've got that. We're, we're trying to figure that out. But uh, very simple, very straightforward as far as protective covenants. It's just basic protection for the property owners. And those can be changed how? Well, that's the part that is not real clear. The, the protective covenants say that that right was um, given to the POA. It was assigned by Cooper to the POA so that they're, the Cooper is no longer involved with changing the protective covenants. Uh, the board has changed them from time to time over the last few years. Um, and that 115 pages was a big change. Um, but um, no vote required to, from the citizens. No, just a board vote. And the question is whether that would stand up to legal scrutiny, uh, because there is the, the thought that potentially it could take a take a membership vote to change the, the protective covenants, just like it did the declaration. But so far, so far, there's not been a legal challenge and the board is able to change them. Anything about protective covenants on your mind, Dennis? Yeah, actually, it, I want to just go into where the where the name comes. I mean, you know, a lot of people ask about the architectural review committee or the architectural committee or whatever. And, and one of the time, the, the things I say to people and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, they really do want to try and preserve the property values. Yeah. And if, you know, if, if I make my boat dock too big and it goes onto your land or I paint my house bright purple and orange and I make a God awful third structure on the top of it. It, and that diminishes the entire community. It doesn't just, you know, my house won't be resellable or not as resellable, but it's going to hurt the whole community. And so the protective covenants, as I think they were intended, would be more for the betterment of the whole. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and you know, you mentioned um, Architectural Control Committee, ACC. Mm -hmm. That was also originally a Cooper function. They appointed the, the uh, ACC members. That was also assigned to the POA. So now the POA board is responsible for assigning those members, of course, upon recommendation and interviews. And it's it's funny you mentioned it because that's the number two paragraph in the protective covenants is about the ACC. Yeah. And a lot of people have horrors. They're like, you know, well, can I put a satellite dish outside my house? Can I put a fence around my yard? Can I? And, and to be fair, the put a fence around my yard is so conditional, but I want to put a fence around my yard. Okay. Do you live in a townhouse? Well, yeah. Eh, that's a different story. See, that's the THA, not the POA. And you think, I live in the village. Mm, we're kind of splitting hairs here, you know? Yeah, it kind of crosses boundaries sometimes. All right, bylaws. Uh, bylaws can be changed by the board of directors, uh, probably upon recommendation of management. Um, they, are, they tend to change a little more often, or at least they have in the past. Uh, but they can be changed any time. Um, is my understanding by yeah, what's just, an example? What's an example? Well, I wouldn't want to give you a specific example because I haven't read them in a few years, but, <laughs> um, but 
typically what it does is it further defines things in the declaration. It may give more procedure on how to elect a board member. Because if you look at the declaration, it doesn't really say much about board members and how they're elected or anything. So that's a, a bylaw type thing. Um, that you, well, you know, let, let me interject. Let me interject for a minute here. It just dawned on me, Randy. We've done show, shows on the Short Term Rental Association, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, Cindy is setting up a Short Term Rental Association for members to kind of be. And she's gone in, Jeff, and you'd find this interesting. She's gone in and looked up, and there's virtually no comment whatsoever about short-term rentals. Well, this is a classic example of something that, you know, Cooper did all the time, but it didn't exist in the same way as it does today. And so now people are very interested in this and the declar- the bylaws just say virtually nothing about it. Right. Right. And, you know, the declaration is not that long. It's only like 12 pages, I think, 13 pages. And a lot of that's legal description of the lands contained. So the uh, bylaws kind of expand on the declaration more than anything policy well you know that can be that can be all kinds of things that that can be personnel policy you know uh just we can have policies on how we're going to invest our funds of course you know that's not going to be covered in the declaration has nothing to do with the declaration has really nothing to do with protective covenants nothing really to do with the bylaws but at some point you need corporate policies hiring firing um, you know, just how you're going to handle your employees and, and how you're going to invest your funds. And when do you need to look at restructuring uh, your sewer bond? You know, if you can get a better rate, that sort of thing. It, it's just, it's more of a corporate type situation. Operational stuff. Operational stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. really getting into operations at that point. Well, like the employee retirement fund and that kind of stuff. Well, there's the one that's, there's a fund employee fund that's separate employee benefit fund that's separate from anything the POA is actually doing. Oh, but uh, yeah, there, there are, um, you know, there, there are retirement um, uh, benefits for POA employees um, best I recall. And, and, you know, there's health benefits and, and so all that stuff would be contained in uh, policy or would be addressed under budget at some point. I want to take just a moment here and Randy, I want to acknowledge this with you, Uh, Jeff, we're, we're delighted and blessed to have somebody that has your level of knowledge about we, we've thrown you questions like a machine gun and you've got an answer every time. Randy, am I right here? Yeah. And well, not only that, but, and the interest, yeah. which, which we all should have at least a cursory interest, I'm not saying everybody's got to want to dive into the weeds, but it's clear to me as the guy who's the outside of the HSV inside out, hoping to be inside one day. But I wanted to learn these things, and it's really clear to me. And it's not a, a it's not a statement of intelligence. It's, it may be a statement of interest, and it may be a statement of these things seem so complex. I mean, it's kind of like grabbing. How do you grab a porcupine? You know, well, very carefully. You know, and and it's it's kind of a similar thing. And I realize that our audience, your eyes might be rolling up in the back of your head, and that's fine. Every episode isn't going to be just for everybody, but these are important things, especially because we are facing a, a vote that is coming up here in the, in the coming, in the next 60 days or so, you know, about this assessment increase. And it just has brought to my mind, just how does the village operate? How do these decisions get made and who's got the power to facilitate these things? And, and I want to, I want to make note. Information. 
our, our, our listeners and our viewers, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. These are people that, you know, come up to me and go, I, I watched that pro property about reserve property. And I never knew that I really, I, and, and I'm looking at them and thinking, okay, if you watch that reserve property, you watch 26 minutes of your life that you're never getting back from me and Randy and Jeff, you know, but no, sincerely, I, thank you, listener. Thank you, viewer. And thank you, Jeff, for your expertise. We couldn't have put this show together without you, without question, Randy, right? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We needed his expertise. Okay, I got two more things I want to ask you about, Jeff. Rules and regulations. We said policy, yeah, that, now rules and regulations. That's just getting more into the weeds, uh, and yeah. that covers more more things about um, you know the use of the golf course and use of the tennis courts or use of whatever amenity. Uh, is out there and and the um, decision just, rests with the board well typically the staff typically though that's really getting down into the weeds and i would think that that would probably be where most board members would go with whatever staff recommended yeah me uh, too because it's really it's really stuff that's beyond a, a board of course you know the board's ultimately responsible right yep um and and i don't even remember if a situation in seven years where we change the rules and regulations. So I don't, I wouldn't even swear that that needs a board vote. Would it be, um, would it be fair to say that rules and regs is even a deeper dive below policy? Oh yeah. 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 Well, yeah, let me ask, for example, Jeff rules and regs, you know, the beach down here behind me, no dogs on the beach, no profanity. The sign says literally no profanity, right. no alcoholic beverages, no, nobody there after dark, blah, 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 blah. And that is an example of a rule, which probably the POA staff came up with and the, and the board members went, yeah, good idea. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that would be my guess if they even voted on it. Yeah. It may have been just said, this is, they, they may have been, and I really wish I knew a little bit more about that, but it just never came up. Right. Um, but that's, if, if the board really wanted to change that, they would have the authority to change it. Okay. And the last thing on my list, and then I'll shut up and let Dennis have the floor fees. So the, the, any, any fees and we don't, I don't want to go down every rabbit hole or any rabbit hole really, but at a high level. Yeah. So the various fees, if I want to install a fence, if I need to cut down a tree, if I, if I take something to the architectural committee, the fees that are attached to that, who, who, who determines what those fees are, or if there even is a fee? Well, they're, they're put in the budget each year that we do the budget for the following year. And they're voted on by the board, but typically they're voted on as a loan. So the board's not reviewing each fee. So you'll have a proposal. And unless there's any board member that wants to bring up any particular fee that this one should be higher, or we raise that one too much, that sort of thing, um, they're just going to vote on a blanket, you know, uh, often Who without even, is proposing a fee. Well, there's been fee committees in the past that have proposed changes to the fees, and some of those have been adopted by management and included in the next year's budget proposal. Uh, you know, they can be changed at, at any point during the year. I think technically they could be, but typically you don't want to change fees in the middle of the year because it affects your budget and other issues. Um, but the fees in general are set by the board based on a recommendation of somebody. Um, and they're typically all passed. Now there were years where we had board members that requested an individual review of any fee that went over, say, 10% increase, that sort of thing. And so you would see, you, we would actually talk about the fees that went up more than 10%. Hmm. Uh, and why? Be because sometimes there's a good reason why it was it started out too low or, or whatever. 
Um, but fees is where the POA has been making up ground over the last few years for assessments lost because of delinquencies um, or just um, needed revenue because of expenses or perceived expenses. So that's where the POA has free reign between the, the board and the budget and the POA management. There's free reign to basically charge anything. And the only restriction that I'm aware of is that the declaration says all fees must be reasonable. Reasonable. That's reasonable. That's basically all it says. So that's left to interpretation. What's reasonable to one person will not be reasonable to other. You know, like when I moved here, golf was free. So free seems reasonable to me. And anything above that is too much. Unreasonable. So you're <laughs> yeah. right. And in the declaration, it actually says that it's it's contemplated that there will no be, be no fees for normal water usage. So well, we you, you, you touched on the one I was going to ask on. Everybody who lives here has water. I mean, nobody hauling water into their house, right? Electric water. You know, you may not have a phone, but you got water and electric, right? I would hope so. Yeah, I would hope. And my point is a lot of people had asked me on the last time we had a, a vote, you know, why don't we just temporarily raise the water rates? And I'm thinking, that's not a bad question. I don't know. Why don't we? And the answer is Jeffrey. Well, you've got to keep them reasonable. I mean, they would open themselves up potentially for legal action if if they just relied solely on um, those fees to cover any budget shortfalls. So um, you you can't rob from Peter to pay Paul too much. I, that would be a good way to put it. Yes, <laughs> at least with that particular. <laughs> yeah, with that least, particular product. With that, I mean, if you want to charge a thousand dollars for a round of golf, you know, you don't have to play golf. Right? <coughs> yeah, well, that may strike some people as blasphemy, but you don't have to play golf, but you pretty much need water. Well, yeah. and let's talk, let's go back and talk about golf again. The, the, the rates, you know, so every year, if I, if I understand this correctly, you know, when I go to Coronado and play an executive round for 18 holes and I start at two o'clock in the afternoon and I figure shit finish at eight o'clock on a beautiful summer evening, that rate is voted on by the board pretty much in bulk, but that rate is typically proposed by the golf committee. Is that well, what the, the budget, the last few years, we've gone to this flexible rate structure on golf. And so um, it varies over the year. What the board approves in the budget is a maximum rate for the year. Oh, so the maximum rate for Isabella golf course during the year uh, is say uh, $30 for a property owner, but hmm. the golf department set and, and management set the rates by the month. So it will be cheaper in January and August than it will be in, say, April and October because of, you know, it, it's hot and miserable sometimes in August and it's cold and miserable sometimes in January. And so you want to encourage play at those times if the weather's favorable. You know, if it gets up to be 50, uh, 50 degrees in January, you want some play, you lower your rates, you get some more play that you wouldn't have had otherwise. But when the courses are packed full in October, then that's when you might charge the maximum fee. So the golf department does have that flexibility. And I'm not aware of any other fees other than golf fees that follow that format for maximum charge, because, you know, does it really matter if it's January or October to use the uh, fitness center? Now mm -hmm. it, it probably matters a lot for some other activities, say like pickleball, but those are covered, I think by an annual fee. And so there, there's not really a daily fee to involve. Well, but course, I, I, the swim, swimming pool is closed. The swimming yeah, pool is well, closed. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what the fee for the swimming pool is in December. <laughs> 
Because it's cool. And by the way, thank you again, because I mean, I think I know the village pretty well. I had no idea, Jeff. I didn't know that's how they did this. I will come back and say just for a second, something that affects us and probably affects probably about another 3000 people is uh, there was, let's just face it. There was a land rush uh, at the commissioner of state lands for tax sale lots. And there was probably, I'm guessing we saw roughly 3000 of those disappear. And those would people would be they were supposed to pay $125 per lot. Now, I'm not a math genius, but 3,000 times 125 would make a lot of money and might make him make a dent in the budget, right? Yeah, but that would be 375,000 if my math is right. Yeah, how much? 375,000. Yeah, I that you'd start talking that a couple of times that you're about to talk real money, right? And yeah, if yeah. they paid if they paid the $500 a year in POA dues that they came with it, Right. And you might want to check my math on that. No, that, that's fine. Yeah, I just I'm, did it in my head. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because me and Randy did it in our head. And we just trusted you. Right, Randy? Yeah. Right. Did it right. Yeah, three, <laughs> yeah. I pulled it in my calculator. I don't, calculator. I don't do math on live or recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, I, I don't remember the exact number, uh, Dennis, of how many lots disappeared from the commissioner's list before. Uh, the POA bought the 2,215, but it was quite a number. They were each legally responsible for $125 transfer fee. Um, and then they're responsible for their $40 a month, $39.97 a month yeah. in assessments because they were all in improved lots. So, you know, so if you had 3,000 lots that were all of a sudden paying another uh, $40 a month, that's, that's $120,000 a month. And I haven't seen the POA throwing any parties over an extra $120,000 this month. Well, and I, I do know this $120,000 a month is going to be $1.44 million a year plus the 375,000. So we should have derived another 1.5 million from those, just those lots that got sold to the commissioner of state lands. But the problem is those people don't pay their dues or for the most part. And, and so then what happens, Jeff, what happens to those people? <laughs> well, you know, if it's if it's just one individual that bought one lot, they're not going to get um, any use of the amenities to start with, because um, I would think that they would be delinquent. You know, you're delinquent if you're more than 60 days in arrears and one hundred twenty five dollars is more than 60 days worth of arrears <clears> because, you know, it's thirty nine ninety seven a month. So I would think they probably wouldn't have amenity usage. I, I think in a lot of cases it was investors that were buying up large blocks of these lots um, in, in big groups. And, you know, I was actually researching that this week and I saw a company that bought a number of lots in Garland County. Um, and, you know, have they paid assessments? I have no way to know as a property owner, uh, but the POA knows. And so what are the options for the POA? Well, the POA could try to coerce that owner into paying those assessments or any owner into paying their assessments. That's what they're going to do first. They're going to send them a letter uh, try to get in touch with them. Uh, at some point, they may decide that it's worthwhile to file a lawsuit. Um, that's been done in the past, especially against a multiple lot owner where, where there's more there there. Uh, but it also matters because some of these lots were being bought out of, from entities outside of the co uh, country. So do you really want to try to do legal service on somebody that lives in South America? You know, that's a real issue. Uh, so. I mean, if it's if it's worth it to the POA, they'll probably eventually do it. Um, but it's gonna it's gonna take a while. Now, of course, they're not, 
you know, you assume just because somebody's not paying the assessments that they they probably won't pay their taxes. But in some cases, these individuals might pay their taxes. Um, so if they don't, eventually they'll go get back to the commissioner of state lands. That's some of them will eventually get back to the commissioner of state lands, uh, but not all of them. Um, the ones that are they pay the taxes, they'll have to go after the legal means. Uh, but the other thing is these these investors, if if you want to call them investors. Uh, they're going to try to flip these things. And hopefully when they sell them to a third party, that third party is going to start paying the assessments because they're just going to have one, right? They're not going to have 20 or 30 or 50 or however many that an investor might have. That end buyer might just have one lot that might pay the assessments. And that new person gets the lot free and clear as far as the POA is concerned. Well, you, they you, do- you, yeah, you touch on that. So hang on. So, the new person gets the lot free and clear. They they don't owe the back taxes. I mean, the back POA dues. They would have to pay any taxes that are owed because the government always wants their money, right? Yeah. Uh, but as far as the the declaration, and Randy, this is a perfect thing. The declaration states that the lien, the 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 legal obligation stays with the prior owner unless specifically assumed by the new owner. So that, that's one of the key things that. That's the sort of thing that's in the declaration. It was really long thinking because the thought was you didn't want to end up. Remember that Cooper started in Cherokee Village and Cherokee Village was organized differently than Hot Springs Village and Bella Vista Village. And it was a special improvement district. And my understanding is, again, not a lawyer, that those fees cannot be forgiven. So if you want to go buy a lot in Cherokee Village, it might be a nice lot, but it might have a $5,000 lien on it. And so you know, that property just becomes permanently non-paying. Whereas here, it gets cleaned. You can, somebody that's delinquent can sell it to somebody new. That new person can take over without the lien because the lien stayed with the prior owner. So that's a, that's a really big improvement. It may not seem like it right away, but it's a really big improvement because it gets the lot back in circulation a lot, a lot easier. All right, and our Civics 101, which we, we've taken as deep a dive as I think we needed to to hopefully make this stuff reasonably clear for, for people that are interested. And again, to our audience, listen, this is, this is not just for our benefit, but it's for your benefit too. And if you're interested, great. And if you're not, well, you should be. <laughs> I'll, just say, I'll just say that. What have, we, what have we not discussed, Jeff, that, you know, before we end the show today – that, that really needs to be part of a civics 101 class? Well, there's so many things we could cover, um, you know, just about how land's added to the village. And we've had the reserve property show. So people that didn't see that could go back and watch that one if they're so inclined. Uh, but there could be potentially many issues about how the board operates and, and more specifics that we didn't get into. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, if if the public, the watching public wants to know, let us know. Yeah, good idea. Because we talked before we hit record today that we we ha- we have a willingness to dive into any one of these things or more. You know, if if you the audience are interested, and I'm going to let you say uh, say goodbye and have parting shots, Dennis. Well, I, once again, I, I will say, and and I hope other people appreciate this too. I don't know any one guest we could have interviewed that had this much information. Seriously, thank you, Jeff. Well, uh, num- number two. Uh, everyone involved, the POA board, 
the members, even the, P, the, the POA, the, the laity ourselves. It's amazing that this works. I mean, really realize it. If at any time we all just, every one of us just kind of went shrug and walked off, you have a problem. You have a real problem. You will, Jeff and I both, and maybe Randy too, we're, we're not going to be people that say the POA is flawless or that it's been without merit, without mistake or without any issue whatsoever. Randy can tell you endless stories of other city governments that have the same kind of problems that aren't corporations, if I can make note. But the bottom line is, is that this runs on volunteers. And frankly, it runs on POA employees who are amazingly dedicated, amazingly dedicated. And Randy, I don't feel like I have the right to kick anybody in the shins. You know well, what I mean? I will say this, this will be, you know, my last shot and then I'll, I'll shut up, but I don't know the line by line salary structure of POA staffers, but I can tell you that my everything in me and everything that I know would tell me that these are not people who are at the top of the pay scale in their jobs, that if they were to go out on the free market, I would guarantee you that 100% of them can make more working somewhere else. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. I had today, I've got clients in city government and today I had multiple meetings with multiple HR directors in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And I get that we're in a Metro area, but the disparity between private sector and their sector, which is as equivalent as you're going to get to POA and, and city government staffers is pretty stinking significant. And it's a super challenge for them just as it is for the POA because of budget constrictions. You know, if I'm, if I'm operating a business, I can drive sales and I got to do what I got to do to compete in the market. And this type of work, it just doesn't work that way. It's all very driven by the dollars that are available and those dollars they're limited. There's a finite number. You know, you don't have a top line sales number that a business can focus on and say, okay, we, if, if we drive sales up 20%, then our budget can increase X. It's not a, not available. So it has to be a self-funded kind of a thing. And in part, because it's a POA and it is not a taxing entity. Yeah. And that's a really important distinction. That is an extremely important extension. And, and let's draw one other distinction. We've had John Paul on our show before. He's been retired twice. The POA has brought him back twice. And if I, not my understanding, Jeffrey, correct me if I'm wrong, he's working for minimum wage. I'm pretty sure he could make more bussing tables at Greg's place than he could being a, 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 the general manager of the POA right now. Am I in the All ballpark? I know is it's about time that he's gone. So say the <laughs> He needs to be gone. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a tremendous asset to the village and yeah, and, and I'm because I, I I've got great respect, you know, and he yeah. he did a great job and he was very forthcoming, and I think yes. the village is lucky to have a guy like that who's got the expertise and the willingness. I mean, I I look at him and I'm thinking, I so would not do this, you know, you're an idiot for doing this. I applaud him for doing it, but he's a more honorable guy than I would be. I'm telling you, he really seriously, he. he Talk about, and that, I think that's the word we need to use, Randy, commitment. The employees are committed. The, 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 the volunteers are committed. The board's committed. 
And, and the idea, I, I guess it just kind of gets under my skin, the idea that there's a, some kind of conspiracy, that these people are just out to get us and they're going to ruin our community. You're not paying attention if that's what you think's going on. And I could, I could be more direct, but I may be wrong, Randy, right? Well, listen, whether you've got an 800 square foot house in the village or whether you've got, you know, the palatial mansion in Diamante, you've got, it's a big investment for you. Yeah. And you care about that investment and you also care about the life that you're able to live there. Why would so many people be clamoring to come in there today? Why would a person like me, who's five hours away by car from door to door, you know, be so driven to want to be there and want to have a house there? Um, I, I, I do because John Paul said in that interview, we all came here for what we came here. We now, we just need to be good stewards of it. We just need yeah. to keep it. We just need to keep the place up and have it be what, what brought us here to begin with. And I, I can't say it better. No, you can't say it better. I'll tell you what, visit our website. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Jeff, for being with us, Randy. Excellent comment. Couldn't have said it better. Come visit us at hotspringsvillageinsideout.com. Watch the video. Go to our YouTube and subscribe. We have over 100 subscribers now. We are, we're dangerously close to 100 to 1,000 people on Facebook. And I, I'm, I'm really, truly flattered at the way that people are responding to the product we're putting out, Randy. And I, I, I owe it to you, and I'm grateful. Hot Springs Village Inside Out or HSV Inside Out. Come see us again. Good night, Mr. Randy. See ya. Thanks, Jeffrey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, hsvinsideout.com, and tell a friend. 